This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on Foshi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on the Foshi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. <laughs> this is Ben Rising with Whitetail Edge, and you're listening to Foshi Creek Podcast with Shed and Joby. This is Austin Delano with Mossy Oak Biologic and Gamekeepers, and you're listening to Joe B. and Shed Whitaker on Forsha Creek Podcast. You're listening to the Forsha Creek Podcast. I'm Joe B. Holland. With me is Mr. Shed Whitaker of Mossy Oak, and our guest today is Mr. Ben Rising. The archery season just around the corner for, actually in the coming weeks, for many states, there's no one better to visit with than Ben Rising. And Ben's one of the most knowledgeable uh, big buck killers today. He is a true woodsman in every aspect, and it's a true pleasure to Ben, to have you on here. I've been looking forward to this, to, to listen to you for a long, long time. Remember watching you back in the shoot probably early 2000s when you started with the juries. And my dad, who says maybe two words about anything, nor has anyone on TV ever impressed him enough to even say anything. Not that he's not unimpressed by anybody, he just doesn't say much. And I remember him calling me, he goes, this Ben Rising kid, he knows what he's talking, this guy knows what he's talking about. I can finally learn something from Ben Rising. So you know, my dad's 78 now. Anytime you've been on anything, he listens and I listen. So just uh, always enjoyed your straightforward uh, uh, honesty, your humbleness, and just the fact that you like to get after it and you study them and uh, you try to be the best that you can. And you've, you've really separated yourself from a lot of the group just by decisions you make. And, and, of course, I think probably being a logger, you see things probably a tad different than most most people do as far as the lay of the land and everything else, which is kind of a lost art. So we're tickled to have you and look forward to anything that you can share with us today. Okay. Well, I appreciate you guys having me. It uh, means a lot. I guess I'm pretty impressed with that deal. If I can impress your old man, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, give us a, you know, I obviously know a lot about you. Shit obviously does. And, and personally, and I've again watched you for a long time. And a lot of people are aware of who Ben Rising is, but just give us a little background of who you are. You can go back and discuss as, as much as you want to from kids to grandkids to hunting everything, whatever you want to tell us. Okay. Well, basically I'm 47 years old now, started in uh, the hunting industry in 2001, filming for the juries, uh, back then, uh, I was 24, I believe at the time, something like that, 25, somewhere in there when I killed my first deer on video for the juries. And I've got five kids all together been married 23 years so yeah so i guess actually i've been filming i was filming because melody's actually the one that introduced me to the juries through a video for my birthday that's how i found them because i didn't watch much tv and i don't even think they were on tv then they were just doing videos but she bought me a video for uh i think it was whitetail madness one for my birthday and that's how i got into watching the juries and then i ended up meeting them somewhere mark was like well if you think you can kill any big bucks because we might look at it he goes, but you got to go buy all the footage and that. And I was like, all right, give it a shot. We killed a 184 and a 156 the first year. <laughs> he called me up and he goes, well, I guess you made it. <laughs> no. So after that, I, I filmed for them for 13 years. And then uh, I'm a logger by trade, do timber buying, work for a big sawmill, buy timber, work with landowners. I don't log every day myself anymore, but I did for a long time since I was 16 years old, cut every day in the woods, logging hardwood here in Ohio. And then just about the last five years, I've been 
in the woods buying timber, dealing with landowners a lot. And I still cut some, log some, but just not every day. Now, Melanie's so. no stranger to big bucks either. She's done pretty well her, her, in her own right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she has. I mean, she killed that first year. She killed that 156 that was on Drury's. So um, she doesn't get a chance to hunt much right now. She's she kind of been having some health problems over the last few years, and she just kind of been down. This year, she probably feels as good as she has in five years. Good so, I don't know if she's going to try to hunt at all. I don't know, but she's got a grandchild now, so she's pretty into that. She does a little real estate, so hunting's just not a big priority for her right now, yeah. which is fine with me. Well, tell us a little bit, kind of how your drive de- developed, you know, as far as chasing big bucks, and where does that passion come from with you? How did it get started? Man, I don't, you know... That's a hard one to answer because I, ever since I was little, I just loved everything about the outdoors. You know, my dad was a trapper, and, you know, I've, I've said this a lot. You know, I've done other podcasts and stuff, but everybody knows that my dad was a trapper. That's kind of how I got started. He trapped, and, you know, he did predator hunting and things like that. And then um, from there, my love hunting whitetails developed when I was about 12 13 years old I just really started wanting to hunt deer you know and I killed my first whitetail 13 and there was an old man that my dad grew up with he was uh, his name was Don Lambert he died just here a couple years back he was a hundred he was over a hundred years old and uh, but he was a real gem of a man and uh, he he taught my dad basically brought my dad up my grandpa hunted but don was from west virginia and don came to ohio for work and he would end up taking my dad back i killed my first deer sitting in don's lap when i was 13 years old buck right in chest and i think i lost <laughs> but it was on public land and that's just kind of you know i always liked to bow hunt when i was a kid and up you know to high school but i didn't really i knew what i was doing but i didn't know what i was doing you know what i mean but those were some of the best days of my life to really teaching myself and learning. And, uh, I got married and, you know, we had some kids and started to slow down just a little bit as far as make time to hunt just a little more at that time. Finally just was able to get, just worked really hard getting it. And once I killed it, that just like sparked it. And that was the one I killed for juries. You know, I killed some nice deer with a bow and felt like I was getting there. You know, I felt confident enough that I could film for somebody that I killed, you know, enough deer at that point, but I had never killed a booner. Trapping was probably the one thing I, I would say taught me a lot about big whitetails. You know, how they, how animals use scent, how they use terrain, how they just being scent free, you know, cause I used to, when I was 12 years old, I ran a red fox trap line and no lie. I mean, I would catch more fox than most uh, adult men in our area trapped. My dad was really proud of that, and you know everybody at the first shop would always say they were his fox. But he said no, he actually does his own trap line all on his own. But he taught me, you know, and I did. I'd get up every morning before school on my three wheeler, and I'd go run my trap line, and come back, get ready for school, and go back home that e- that night, and I'd go set reset traps or whatever if I caught one, you know, in the daylight. I just didn't want the animals sitting there all day, so I'd get up, crack dawn, and go check them probably scared more fox off than anything because they hadn't even finished moving yet so but yeah those were that's pretty much how i i think i got into it so much you know it was just kind of in our family a little bit do you use the the scent aspect like with trapping 
how much scent or related to that do you use as far as your deer hunting? Are you, are you wanting to use a lot of different scents or lures, kind of like you do with the trapping? Well, I'm big on scrapes. I am big on scrapes because that's uh, that's one thing a big deer can, you know, how do you say it? He, that's his calling card. That's their communication system. And there's everything is natural about a scrape to them. You know, it's not like a bait man-made that you're trying to to dupe them on you know, they do every day of their life is communicate through scrapes or uh sign posts things like that and so with big deer if you can figure out which scrape line that big bedding can mock scrape and piss him off you mess with his mind i killed that almost one year last year on october 14th during the law Got real close to one and just made him mad, basically. I don't do that stuff for Shed when he comes and hunts with me. I'll make him grind it out. Well, let's let's go back to your to your mock scrapes. Kind of how do you, Ben, how do you do those? What from the, how high do you want to lick and branch? Is there sick, is there a particular branch you prefer over an, uh, another one? Just kind of what is your, your whole setup? What do you look for and how do you do it? Truthfully, I, I mean, I try to make the deer do what I want them to. So like if, you know, if I've got an area that I can access close to a bedding area or something like that, that's easy to access and I'm not going to blow a bunch of deer out, then I'll try to make a, a mock scrape in an area like that to where I can hunt it, where the wind is in my favor, get in and out of my stand, try to catch the deer coming from like bed to feed or between doe bedding areas, things like that. It's where I kind of, Typically, they'll already have scrapes in some of those areas, but a lot of times I'll just start them a little earlier in the year just to kind of get them wanting to use it, you know, um, or like on the edge of a food plot. It kind of takes their attention off a little bit, so like if there's a bunch of deer in a food plot and they come into the food plot, eventually those bucks go over and they start working those scrapes, you know, and that's a good spot to try to get a shot at one if, you know. I try just to put them basically where they're going to run into them or where they naturally want to be anyways because it makes it easier to to hunt a deer that way but it doesn't got to be any certain height i mean i use the branch butter a lot by black widow that mm -hmm. really gets fired up started on that uh that's good stuff it's just like a tube that you kind of put it in the leaves you know and they just they'll get up on their hind legs and rake those leaves out with their antlers and i mean it, it just drives them pretty basically nuts um but the idea like a lot of people don't understand like the idea between a scrape they think a scrape is all about breeding and you know like putting doe breeding scent in there but honestly a lot of times you can get a buck to work a scrape more by making him upset than you can because like there's t there's community scrapes and then there's territorial scrapes and there's breeding scrapes and the territorial scrapes are usually the ones that are on the outside edge of a buck's bedding, you know, bedding room area. So if you can get close to one of those scrapes mid-season, early season, and you can put another dominant buck urine in there, um, that's something that will really get him fired up. Because then he's like, well, who's, who's peeing in my scrape? You know what I mean? And, like, makes him mad because then he wants to come. And he'll start checking it earlier and earlier all the time trying to catch that deer. Now, you know, because it makes him upset. Now, what time do you do you start with your mock scrapes? You said you put them out just a little bit earlier than 
some of the natural. Well, I have some out right now, like that I'll just open up with, you know, I'll just kick the dirt open and um, put a little urine in it or put that branch butter above it. It's more at this time of year, it's more of like a sightliness, you know, like seeing that bare dirt. They're already, their horns are starting to harden up. I got deer shedding velvet here already. So they're already raking their antlers and leaves and things like that. So their testosterone starting to change just a little bit already their hormones so they'll definitely start scratching in them scrapes now a little bit and just kind of i saw one the other day that i didn't even make i saw where a deer had been raking under a olive bush you're not going to tell people about spraying it all over yourself using it for mouthwash and that type of stuff (laughs) yeah (laughs) well i used to spray it on me a little bit but i don't i i've got a cover scent that we're coming out with that's pretty good that actually Black Widow is going to produce, and uh, we'll actually have a spray bottle for it and everything. So I'm kind of excited about that. I've used it a lot, and it's kind of a concoction that me and Andy from Black Widow come up with. And I'll actually let you use some this year, Shannon. <laughs> he actually he gave me a bottle. We were in Kansas last year, and uh, we went in and hung this set. And it's in a spot he had killed a deer before, but he told the wind in this spot is really iffy the place down on the river and uh he's like just take this with you when them when them bucks come in there just spray it four or five times and they're gonna smell this over you so of course i did that and then i covered myself in it of course i, I saw some bucks just not nothing i wanted to shoot but you know it, it uh he's he's got a bunch of tricks that he's not telling <laughs> I, I bet he does Hey, Ben, give us a little bit of, you gave us a little bit of your history. Give us a little of your history with Shed. Because it takes a special guy to connect with Shed and keep him coming back around. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Shed's like a Shed's like an onion. Shed has layers. I do. You, you, you kind of have to peel them layers slowly, but you ain't even going to touch those layers if you ain't even the kind of person he even wants to be around. So. That's exactly right. He, he he's, a, he's got a formula there, and it works for him. You know, it really it, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. But yeah, yeah, once you sure. pe- once mean, you peel him back, he's a good good solid fella in there. Do anything for you, isn't he? Oh yeah, well that's right. Now how long do you guys go like, back? Oh man, geez, Shed, we first time we met was at a jury meeting, wasn't it? Probably. Yeah, I think it yeah, was. Of course, because I was yeah, because I was surprised that you were from Ohio because you were there with uh, Mossy Oak at the first at the one of the jury meetings that I met you at, and that was back. What year did Ben kill that? big velvet buck the first real big velvet buck they were really tearing them up that year that had to been like 08 yeah oh oh seven oh eight yeah that's what i was thinking but that that's probably about how long we've known each other and then we just kind of reconnected as i started to do my own show because sheds the guy through mossy oak and to deal with and so that's kind of who that's how we kind of reconnected on that level as far as um, and that's kind of how we'd become a lot closer, I guess you'd say. He's at my house, pretty much open door anytime he wants. So, you know, that's how it works. Now, how was it going from the transition of of going from the juries to then your own show with the Whitetail Edge? Is that was that a big transition or learning curve for you, or did you kind of have that down from the years of working with them? Well, I mean, obviously they taught me how to film and stuff. You know, I knew that part of it. But I'd never produced a show, and I didn't. I didn't have any interest in doing TV. I only wanted to do online, um, and I wasn't even sure 100% that's what I was going to do because 
I decided to just stop doing the stuff with the juries in like 13 and I didn't start white tail edge till 15. Um, but I kind of took a, I, I was still hunting, but I just wasn't producing anything with it. And, um, you know, obviously it, at first it was, it was a, our first year was tough and we killed some good deer, but learning the curves of how to produce a, a show that people want to watch and the whole, I'll tell you the biggest learning curve for me was learning to adapt to using social media. Cause I never had it before and I absolutely hate it. <laughs> and uh, to this day, but it's a tool that we have to use to keep everybody, you know, the sponsors and to connect with your fans and uh, to keep putting content out all the time. So we have to, we had to learn to use it and we've done pretty good. I mean, our following is very loyal that we have. So that's something that I've learned that a lot of the sponsors that we have, you know, we may not have this kind of following that some of the bigger shows have as far as numbers, but our engagement and our people that buy and use our codes and stuff really amazes a lot of the sponsors that we work with. So that's pretty cool. I think that's a blessing truthfully, you know, that's where, that's a God thing. I think not so much me. Mm -hmm. And the social, she and I have been learning a little bit about social media ourselves of late, you know, trying to figure yeah. out with some things that he and I are doing together. And it is, it's a, it's a necessary evil really in today's world. And if you, if you don't do it and I, you know, I look at you as, uh, really in my opinion, you were the most popular, the most, I, I don't know, whatever word you want to use as far as the people that were on those early jury shows. And I think even still today, you know, that you were and, and to, but to keep relevant people to see you, you've got, you know, that's how people look yeah. at things today, social media. Well, and there is no, I will never, ever say that, like, I was lucky that I was who I was with the juries because um, that they gave me the platform originally, you know, and I thanked Mark and Terry many times over for that. You know, uh, me and Mark still text today, talk all the time. If I see Terry, you know, we all hug, whatever. We're like family still. Um, we've done some things together even since I've left. Um, but they gave me the first original platform to make Ben rising who Ben rising became in the deer world, you know, and without that, I don't know that white tail edge would be as successful as it is right now, because a lot of our core followers first came from people that knew me before. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of, and I had the, I had the, the reputation of finding a big deer and killing it because of the jury videos and DVDs that were out there, you know? So once people knew I had a show, they wanted to watch it, yeah. you know, they found it. So it's pretty cool. And then to just get with shed and Mossy Oak and Ben and those guys just made it all the more special because I'd, I'd worn Mossy Oak for years, you know, and then to be able to get them as a sponsor, um, was really special to me. Yeah, there, there comes a time all good things end, and I, I know a lot of people hate to see you leave the juries, but a guy's got to do his own thing, and you got to move on to, to do your thing when it's not your show really to begin with. It's a natural well, progression. They, yeah, and I mean, the juries were just in a position where they they just were getting a lot of new faces. They were kind of changing in their own way, and I was still kind of stuck in the old way of how we came up mm -hmm. doing it, and I guess I just wasn't ready to conform to all that yet, you know? Yeah. And so I just felt like, you know, it was time for me to just do something different and enjoy it again. And that's what I tried to do. And it's been great. You know, it's still a grind because you got to deal with everything yourself now, but 
I, I truly gained a lot of respect for Mark and Terry and Matt and the people that they had in positions that dealt with sponsors and products and getting team members product. And that's a lot. And I've learned that, you know, the last six years that it's a grind, uh, you know, doing that I, kind of stuff. I bet so. You know, looking back, if you had to take one or two takeaways, the things that, you, that really stick out that you learned from being involved with the juries, uh, what would that be? Um, I think teaching people want to learn, you know, and I, I guess, I think some people have a natural knack anyways, to be able to relay a message or to relay information like Mark is that way. For instance, you know, when Mark talks, everybody listens, you know, it's cause I want to hear what he's got to say during, <clears throat> you know, Terry's the same way. But I think I have that, I've been told I have that persona in my own right, and I think that's why I became somewhat popular through the juries, not only the deer I would kill, but um, how I did it and the places I was hunting and doing it. I wasn't hunting, you know, a lot of special ground. You know, I was out knocking on doors like everybody else, trying to find those deer, um, hunting against other people for the same deer, uh, things like that, you know, and I think that kind of set me apart a little bit. And I don't know, my just bubbly personality, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a, you're like a, I, I can't say an onion, I guess. I don't know. Like a, like I'm a like a mushroom. Yeah, there you go. Like but, no, but when, when you do, the thing about you is like when I hunt with you, it brings back a lot of the ways I used to hunt because I, you know, living in Mississippi, it's completely different terrain, the deer and like when, you know, you put me in a spot or you say, Hey, this stands here. It's never, you don't ever go in there and go, why is this here? And if you do question it within about five minutes, something walks by and you figure it out real quick. But that's the thing that, that I've noticed is you don't really, you don't have to say a lot. You kind of, the, the results, and what you do kind of speaks for itself because I've been in a lot of the spots you said or places or stuff you showed me. And it's like, yeah, this is, there are just not very many people to me better than what you do that, that read the woods like you do. Mm -hmm. I appreciate I just, that. I've been around a lot of people and been to a lot of places and they're just, you know, there, a lot of it is just, yeah, here's a corn pile, go sit on it, they'll come. And it, hunting with you it's a lot of times it's like well there ain't one there and you're you know you're hunting this corridor or a certain spot and it's you know because he knows what those deer are doing and yeah. it's just not many people can do that i think it's a lost art truthfully you know with that talking about you know the the teaching aspect and again shed said exactly what i was thinking and my perception of you always was you know larry bird was a basketball player that Everybody said he could always see things on the floor that other players couldn't quite see. He'd anticipate things. And I, I, again, not knowing, not knowing you personally, that's always what I took with you in the woods and shed to me kind of accentuated that. So from a teaching aspect, how are you able, or do you feel that you can teach what you do and show that to another person or, or can you do that? Or is that just you either have it or you don't have it? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because I made a post back and you, if you can find it on my Instagram or in our Facebook, but I can't remember when I made that, but I made that post and man, that post got a lot of traction because it talked about like how there's just, 
my mom always told me that was just my gift, <clears throat> you know, was uh, just, I don't know, like being 12 years old and catching red fox and a, and a number of them in a week when they're a real cagey animal, they're the kind of animal to flip your trap over, turn around, take a dump on it and let you know they've been there. You know what I mean? They're little smart asses, you know, <laughs> that makes me mad. So like I figure out how I'm going to catch them. I remember being a, a kid being at uh, trapping conventions, watching Tom Miranda give seminars, you know, doing dirt hole contests. And then I, I just, everything I do like that, I just try to do it to the best I can. But the teaching side of it, my mom always just said that I was never afraid to talk to anybody. Our neighbor, his name was Ed Penny, he was just a little short guy, but he had the big loudest voice, couldn't hear real good, so he talked super loud. <laughs> but he had a, the biggest heart ever, and he'd come down and visit work in the garden or whatever and attracted to people that I don't know had something to say and I guess she said you're kind of the same way in a sense of you know like when when I would talk people would listen and whether it's talking about deer or logging or timber or working with a landowner on his trees you know I just have a, a, a gift of being able to come across to people and help them understand make them feel easy about it I guess Discuss a little bit of strategy. You know, your interest in exit to your stands. What do you do to make sure that that buck has no idea that that you exist? I, I think oftentimes we think they don't know we exist, and we wonder why we hadn't seen them for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they, they know we're there. What what do you do to avoid that? Well, I think the biggest thing is, for one, don't hunt those deer until they're ready to be hunted. Um, whether it's early season and you got one pattern, then you can hunt him, but until they're telling you that they can be hunted, I think that's the biggest mistake people make, you know, is trying to overhunt a deer. Then when it's time to hunt, you have to have that good access. And sometimes you're forced to cross the line, like where you don't want to go. Like you have to go across that comfortable zone to be able to get yourself in that position, but it's got to happen in a time or two. You know, you're not going to have many chances at that point. But sometimes you'll access the stand one way and leave it another. And I don't think a lot of people do that. A lot of people go into a spot and go out the same way. Well, yeah. deer travel or bedding can be different at that different time. You know, Shadow even tell you, like some of my spots, I try to make them really easy to get into. You know, get in and get out or to where we're not making a big footprint and blowing up the farm. Because when Shed's here, sometimes he's got to hunt one or two farms the whole time he's here. So we have to keep those farms in a, in a position where those deer aren't alert and shed seen some of the bigger bucks, you know, multiple times in a couple sits, just sometimes get a shot. Sometimes you don't. So I, I think he can attest to that, you know, that it is a big part of being able to keep hunting a farm after a deer. Do you spend a lot of time like you know, in the summer from cutting lanes or clearing leaves or, you know, to make that access easier? What, what do you how do you do that part of it? I Well, yeah, I mean, it depends. Like, um, I always try to have somewhat things mowed up, you know, to access farms. Um, but then there's some areas that I pretty much just stay the heck out of them until it's time to start making moves and I can maybe get on a deer. Like, sometimes I'll take a mower in, just a riding mower, and maybe mow around the edge of a cornfield, make a bunch of racket just like the farmer, slide a couple cams up on trees, 
once those deer start telling me, yep, they're working where I think they are, then I might go back in, you know, on that mower again, take a stand in there and slide it on the edge somewhere and hang it while the mower's running and slide out. They don't even know anything ever happened other than that there was a tractor in the farm. You know, timber, deep timber, I'll actually rake paths into deep timber sometimes. I'll actually go in and rake a trail all the way to where I want to go. Um, Shad's not had to hunt a bunch of the big deep timber yet too much. You know, most of the time we were able to got, get one pinned down for him, you know, on the edges, and he doesn't have to make a huge access. But like where he hunted last year, he had an encounter with a really nice 10-point last year deep in the woods, and I had a trail mode right to the stand, and, you know, he tweaked the stand a little bit, got better on the deer, but that I was using his eyes to tell me where we need to hunt. I never sat the farm ever in my life. I just was winging it, and he adjusted it. What, did you move it about 20 yards yet? Yeah. But it was pretty close to where, I mean, well, that, that place is set up to, yeah. uh, especially that ridge right there, set up to kill the big deer on. Yeah. Yep. I just mowed that up the other day, too. I did that plot in the back, mowed it back down. I got some cameras running in there again, so we'll see. A lot of nice young deer for sure again already. A couple mature deer, nothing giant yet. They plant corn next to it or beans? Beans. They're going out to that bean field. That neighbor's telling me all the time about seeing the nice bucks in the field, but he said he hadn't seen anything giant. But he's wanting to lease that farm off of bad, so that must mean there's something there. The the where the cornfield was or the the one behind it uh where the corn is out by the, by the front road yeah you know there's beans right there and wrapped around where that cow pasture is yeah so but that farmer that owns all that he keeps wanting to lease our piece he makes the hay off of it he knows something he just won't tell me yeah <laughs> i think they feed them on their side too so i think happens so just a matter of I'll get a picture of him eventually if he's there. That 110 should still be there. Yeah. Now, ben, you mentioned that, that you let the deer kind of determine or that let them tell you when it's time to, to go in and get them. What, what is it that triggers that for you? What, do you? what are you looking for? Is it daylight pictures or is it a multitude of other things? Yeah, a lot of daylight. Um, you know, and some people don't have as many cameras as I'm, you know, fortunate to have, and I get that. Um, but... You know, you can have a just a, you can maybe only own 10 cameras and you can figure out when deer are starting to move a little more or if they're using a spot. And one of the true ways I figure it out, too, is like using them scrapes that are on the edges of food sources and, you know, or closer to a bedding area. Because the thing with the bedding area is you don't want to be like traipsing through the woods to get to a bedding area and check a camera. You know, that's the surefire way to ruin your farm. You know, you can tell little things by like running a camera on an edge of a food source or somewhere on that scrape. And by the times that those deer may be hitting that scrape, going back to bed, leaving the food plot or entering it in the evening, if they're getting there before dark or right at dark, then that means if he's getting there right at dark and you know pretty much where he's bedding, then you can get in between them and you'll probably get a shot in daylight. You know, same with working a scrape. Killed a big deer a few years ago just because I knew once he started working that scrape on his way back to bed on the edge of the field, he was leaving. He'd hit that scrape and he always hit it at night. Well, then all of a sudden 
I, I noticed a lot of deer, a lot of the other bucks in the area were leaving. I wasn't getting pictures of a lot of bucks. He was the only one I was getting. So he was making his rounds, basically establishing his dominance in the territory there, mid-October, pushing the other little guys off. He was tired of dealing with them. You know, them big deer, like right now, they're all grouped up. And people think that, oh, man, look at all these bucks I got. That don't mean crap. You know, you can have all the velvet bucks you want in your bean <laughs> field right now, and it don't mean a thing come mid to late October. I don't get too worried about it. And if I'm not having those kind of results, and I just kind of wait. And eventually, like what happened with that deer, his name was high and tight. I caught him working the scrape at daylight. I mean, it was like five minutes right at, I mean, dusk was just, dawn was, you know, just coming. I mean, he was just getting daylight and I caught him on that scrape. And uh, luckily I went and checked the camera. I didn't have cell cams then. And I went and checked the camera because I was like, man, it's got to be about time for him to start showing his, you know, and this was like the 21st, 22nd. And uh, I, I caught him on daylight. So then I knew, I knew there was a certain pinch between his bedding area and where he liked to go check on these does and feed. And I hunted that pinch. I seen him the first evening, but he was already with the doe. I killed him the next morning. He yeah. was 184. How many cameras do you typically put out? Well, it depends on how many farms, you know, but, like, you never can have enough, to be honest mm, with you. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, especially, like, cell cams, you know. And everybody says, well, cell cams are, like, cheating now. Well, we don't use cell cams to be, like, oh, I'm going to go jump in that tree because that deer just walked by it mm -hmm. type of thing. You know, I like to use the cell cam so I don't have to intrude my farms all the time yeah. and drive an hour to go check cards, waste gas and time. You know what I mean? It just helps with information that, you know, is pretty helpful for me. It now, saves a lot of time. What kind of importance do you put on, on when you get when you're getting nighttime cell pictures or, or regular camp pictures? Do you put a lot of emphasis on that? You know, if it's midnight, 2 in the morning, do does that mean much to you? Do you skip on well, through those? I like to have them around at that time. You know, the key is, is if you've got them at midnight somewhere and you also got them somewhere else on the farm at daylight, then you're holding that deer. Yeah. You know, and then that's a huge piece of the puzzle to try to figure out, okay, what do I need to do? You know, he's somewhere and I now I just got to piece it out. Um, and obviously as food sources change or beans dry down or corn gets cut, you know, everything can change. So all those little pieces of the puzzle and that information is something that you constantly got to be thrown into the mix and on how you're going to hunt something. And again, that's just something like you asked. I guess you can talk to your blue in the face to some people and they'll never understand it. I guess going back to what I was talking about that post I made, I was explaining that, that some of you will listen to what I have to say and you'll pick up on it. Some of you, I could talk to you for three days, and you'll never be able to understand what I mean or be able to see the forest for the trees, so to speak. For me, it's like I walk into a woods, and I don't know what it is. It's like it's like when I put my earmuffs on and my hard hat when I start start my chainsaw up and I start cutting timber. I'm like in my own little world. I'm I'm in a zone, and it's probably like somebody that works out a lot. They put their earbuds in, turn their music on, they're in the zone. Well, me second my foot gets out of the truck I'm business like especially if it's a new farm like I don't I'm just I don't know I'm just trying to go into la la land I guess and I just start looking for what I need to see it just works for me 
Tell us about your your tree stand setups. What do you what are you looking for there? Are you looking for pinch points, or you just you know I hear some people say they just look for the perfect tree to hang a stand in. You know, which doesn't seem like that would be productive as far as killing a good one. But what do you look for as far as your tree stand setups? For me, it's all about location. You know, where I think I can get the best crack. Like put myself or people that hunt with me in their best odds of getting their opportunity in a deer. Um, a lot of people talk about, read a lot of these articles over the years, and I think a lot of it's just hogwash, just people trying to talk, like make something more, sound more complicated than what it is. But all a buck is is a, is a goat with horns that likes to eat, breed, sleep. And they'll do things, they're masters of survival. You know, so they do things a little different than maybe a three-year-old buck will, but the end result is they still are doing the same thing at the end of the day. They still stand up out of their bed, take a dump, go get a drink, and walk to where they're going to go, do whatever, and they're pretty simple. And, you know, you read things about, like, you got to hunt scrape 60 yards downwind because they're always going to scent you. That's the biggest crock of doo-doo I've ever seen (laughs) in my life. That's just people writing, you know, fancy talk in my mind. Uh, I've never once seen a big buck do that ever. Like if there's a good hot scrape or a rub line or something that that deer, he's right on it. I mean, he wants to come up there and I, my goal is to make him mad. He wants to be standing in it. You know, I don't want that deer going 60 yards downwind scent checking. I don't need that. I want him in it. So if you, if you're hunting a scrape that a deer is doing that, it's not a scrape you should be hunting. It's the wrong kind of scrape. It's a it's a secondary scrape that doesn't mean anything to the deer. They'll just hit it when they come through. What you're looking for is those super active bathtub scrapes that get a lot of traffic from multiple deer. And that could be close to a funnel or a pinch point where deer enter a food plot. They'll come into it, scrape that tree, then go to eat. Things like that. But, yeah, definitely I try to set up where I get – give myself multiple opportunities at trails or um, unless it's a particular deer that I know he's only used in a certain spot on a certain wind. And I know a lot of times guys will say, well, certain deer will only use, you know, they'll come into a plot with the wind in their face. Yeah, I've seen them do that. But man, I've also seen those big giant deer do things that you're like, why did he just do that? Come right in, wind at his back, just, I think it's all about comfortability or where they're at or type of thing, you know, like hunting public land, places like that where I've killed some deer in Iowa and Ohio on public ground. I definitely would hunt areas that um, were closer to the thickets, closer to the bedding where the deer I knew wanted to be. And I'd look for more of those fainter trails there. That seemed to be where I would find the bigger deer on public ground in those kind of spots. Yeah, I think I've heard you mention before that you prefer hunting a buck where the wind is is good for him, but but not as good for you. Uh, I think that's what you said. Can you can you discuss? Yeah, that? I mean, so like, and you know, there's multiple guys to talk about that. I'm not the only one, but it gives that deer a false sense of security. But it can also go the wrong way too if you're not scent free. You know, because if if your scent just gets a little bit to the right or whatever, you you know. The wind's kind of in his favor. He thinks he's good, but if your setup is just correct, he's basically going to come in to where that defined line of that wind cone is just missing him. 
gives him that false sense of security where he still keeps coming up the trail or into the food plot or wherever you're trying to hunt him. But it definitely works. Anything from a weather standpoint, as far as the ideal factors, of course, you know, barometric pressure, cloud cover, all those things that we that we hear about. Is there anything specific that that you look for that you think that stands out over other factors people should pay attention to? Well, obviously, high pressure is key. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing better than high pressure after a storm, in my opinion. A lot of people like to hunt the cold fronts or you know, like a, a heavy storm right before a heavy storm. I'd much rather hunt after when you get some high pressure and it's everything's calmed down. That's when I want to be in the stand. I mean, I'll hunt those cool fronts coming in in October. Nice north wind on a green food source, you know, in October. It doesn't matter what the moon's doing at that time or anything else. If you get a 15-degree drop in temperature in October, you better be sitting somewhere on a green food source with the wind in your favor because you're going to see deer. How about the, the, the moon phases? Is there anything there, you know, the red moon with it? Being yeah. directly overhead. Yeah, I mean, I'm huge. I'm huge on the red moon with the moon guide. I mean, I'm a firm believer in that. We push it hard on our show because it is definitely a tool that I believe in. It's just proven too many times to me that the moon has an influence. You know, there. I know there's been studies done. People say, you know, some of these colleges and that say it doesn't have any kind of influence. But man, my personal opinion, I don't see how they could possibly say that. Just from what I've seen in the woods and. Those late falling moons in the morning or early rising in the evening, the red moon phases within two hours of daylight or dark when they peak, just magical times if the weather's right, you know. Now, if it's 100 degrees in November, I don't care what it's doing. Nothing wants to do anything, you know, even me. <laughs> so weather is weather trumps, in my opinion, weather trumps everything. Are there certain strategies or that you use during early season and during the rut late season that, consistencies between any of those three or they're just I guess what would be your strategies for the for early mid-season during the rut and then late season can you kind of talk about the, those three different phases there? well I mean that early season obviously it's all about food if you know if you've got some standing beans yet that are dry close to green food source those that's a great spot to be hunting they're going to hit that green but they're also going to chew on those beans a little bit too um water's key if it's early season it's hot you got some water close to those areas too that's really good as mid-october starts to get you know into that later period then i really start looking at those scrapes hard i kind of let the deer tell me what areas they're liking to be at that point if they're wanting to be in you know closer to the food but those bucks are going to start seeking them does out on those food sources bumping them around smelling them feeling their oats so it's still a little bit based around food into that october 18th to the 25th third range and then after that it starts I think they start more wandering a little bit they start stretching their legs hitting multiple different food sources looking for maybe a, a different doe or that might be in heat checking bedding areas during the day a little bit at odd times of the day just kind of getting up out of their bed being a little bit antsy I've noticed so it's not a bad time to be hunting you know transition zones at that point from bed to feed or you know, areas like ache, like a, you know, like I say, a nice white oak acorn flat in the timber that's not too far from bedding can be a great place to catch a big buck those right times of the day. But then as the rut gets here, you might as well throw your arms up in the air because anybody can tell you, you know, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. You can't really pattern a deer at that point. You just got to hunt those 
areas that you know those deer are going to be moving through trying to get from one place to another one of my big tactics is getting downwind of bedding areas and thickets and trying to call the deer you know using the rattling antlers and things to try to make a deer come to me that's one of my big tactics in the rut especially when i'm out of state what about you know late season usually you know your muzzleloader getting toward that end of december january are there whatever best food source you you have there or is there other things that's, you try to do that's pretty much all you can do you know if you can bait deer or if you're hunting cut corn or whatever i mean they're slaves to their stomach at that time of the year but they're really pressured and cagey at that time of the year they've experienced the whole season of hunting you know at that point you really have to, to hunt the, the weather conditions and pray for the right weather put them in front of you combine that with the moon and the weather all at the same time those are the days you're going to see those big boys you know you can go see deer all the time but the ones that we want to see it's really still going to depend on that cold weather it's going to drive them up out of their bed moon phases combined with that or storms you know high pressure after a storm get a real nasty cold front for four or five days stagnant super cold zero degree weather and all of a sudden you get a warm-up where it's 20 25 degrees and sunny that's a great day to be out there. Them deer are going to be moving. Now, when do you when do you start your morning hunting? You, do you do that? I'm assuming you probably don't do that from the get go, or or do you? And and when do you kind of start looking to, for those no, morning I, hunts? I don't. I mean, I. Uh, it's funny because you know last I I think about this all the time. Last year I was at a softball game and it was the first day of bow season in Ohio and it was like freaking 90 degrees, and we went to a softball game that morning at like 10 30 and i had like five people walk up to me at that softball game like you hunt this morning did you get in there did you see anything and i was like yeah went in there my, my other buddy he got a kick out of it too he's he just kind of made a joke like yeah went in there hang and bang man got in deep understand <laughs> you know it's just like and the one guy i asked him i was like you on a big one he's like yeah man probably the biggest year i've had in a long time and he was showing me pictures and i was like you had any pictures of him in daylight in the morning he's like no I was like, do you hunt this morning? He's like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you just realize what you just said? He's like, yeah. <laughs> he never did kill the deer all year. Never killed it. He ran it out of there in the first week. So it's just, that's what I say. Like some people get it, some don't. You know, it's, uh, I don't know if Shed gets it. You know, Shed's one of them guys that I'm firm believer if Shed still lived in Ohio, he'd be just as successful killing big deer. You know, he, he gets it. You just got to live where they're at. That's yeah. the problem. If I lived in Iowa, I'd scare people. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that's a, that's a different place there. And I hunted Iowa last year no, for the first time, and I just yeah. I think about it every day since, you know, just to just oh, imagine crazy. the experience. There's nothing like it in the world. There is not. And I wish, I wish that, and I don't care if you're hunting public or private, there's nothing like Iowa, mm -hmm. and, that, and kudos to the Department of Natural Resources for Iowa because they've done it right. They have, and I wish I wish so many other states. I mean, I cry about it because I can't own a farm there and hunt it. You know what I mean? Like, because as a non-resident, it don't matter if you ain't eight thousand acres that's there. Right. If you're a non-resident, you still have to draw a tag, and that's going to take you six years. Mm -hmm. And so, I will not buy a farm there. So, I bought a farm in Illinois because I can still hunt it, but. Um, I wish like Ohio and places that had great deer hunting would do the same. Like they would kind of reciprocate and understand the game laws and how they manage 
their herd how important it is and how we could have such big deer. Um, there's just some really good things about Iowa as far as you can't bait deer during season. Um, they don't, they limit how many people can come out of state to hunt there. Um, it just makes for great hunting. I mean, it's just a really special place in the United States to, to whitetail hunt. Well, it is. It's, it's amazing. Well, I mean, they're the, they're the model for, to me, for as far as deer conservation, deer management. And, and it's amazing that somebody else hadn't, you know, jumped in the fray. They're just kind of like we're talking to you today because we want to learn from the best. Why do these, the other 49 states are, are not asking, well, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I think the thing is, is they don't care. Like, they're more worried about the money to where Iowa yeah. is not, I think. Like, because if they were worried about the money, they could sell every tag that they could possibly issue. Certainly. But they're not geared towards, we just want to take everybody's money. You know, to where Ohio now and places like I, you know, Ohio, Missouri places, anybody can hunt there anytime you want. Indiana, two-week rifle season in the middle of the rut. Mm-hmm. You know, I got friends that live in Indiana. That's so brutal. Same with Kentucky. Great deer hunting in Kentucky, but rifle season right through the rut for weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's so many deer get pounded. In Ohio, what we deal with is... Uh, you know, again, I'm not against baiting, but it definitely affects the deer in Ohio now because there's so much corn dumped on the ground and bait dumped on the ground in this state. And it's changed the way the deer are, and it's really hurt our age class because there's so many more people hunting now since they allowed crossbows. Um, so the classic scenario now is a corn pile, crossbow, and a box blind, and, you know, that's your big thing and I mean so many more people are hunting that way and these three-year-old bucks four-year-old bucks that are going to be our future 70 and 80s gear never get there mm-hmm. you know so it's it's a controversial subject not saying there's anything wrong with crossbow just saying the baiting just makes it for any mediocre hunter to be able to start harvesting deer pretty easy yeah. what is your thought on the old uh, October law uh, obviously the deer are somewhere, so they haven't completely disappeared, you know, off the the face yeah. of the landscape. So what are they doing during that time? And or in is that accurate statement? Is that is there a lull during that kind of time period? Well, I think the deer movement is definitely suppressed at that time, you know, because it's typically hot. They're they're in that transition of they've shed velvet, they've they're starting to put on weight. Um, you know, they're gearing up for the rut and they're they're still eating a lot of times i think people mistake because they're on acorns heavy in the timber you know they're if they can find acorns that's where they're at mm-hmm. you might have one woods that has zero acorns but you're not going to have very many deer but you know there might be a woods half mile three quarters of a mile away that all the red oak or white oak hit in that woods that year well that guy's going to be into it you know um pressure i think too at that point a lot of times there's been a lot of early season pressure. People have been out deer hunting a lot, and them deer are suppressed by the pressure. You know, they're becoming a little more nocturnal. And then what starts to switch that is just as the rut comes, them deer just can't take it. Their hormones get them off their butts, you know, and they just start being deer. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it, it does, yeah. And then when, Ben, does the time come that you decide that you're going to stand from daylight till dark? When, does that obviously i'm sure that kicks in for you at some point where you're going to be in a stand all day when yeah i mean it, when shed it shows does. <laughs> yeah i mean i i 
I'm not a huge fan of hunting all day. I've, I've done it many times. I don't love to do it, you know. Is he lying, Jed? He puts me out and says, I'll pick you up at dark. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's not hunting all day, but you are. <laughs> but uh, not every like, time. Usually it just kind of depends on, yeah. on the stick. If we're hunting in the timber, if we hunt the timber, we're hunting all day. Because, like, those spots are set up for all day sits. Yeah. Um, but, like, if we've got a food source that we're hunting on the edge, then, yeah, that's different. You know, we hunt those evenings or whatever, and then we'll do something different for morning hunts. You know, typically I put him in the timber in the morning, you know, trying to catch deer coming back to bed or rut funnels or whatever. So those spots can be active all day long, but typically we kill them in the evenings, don't we, Shed? Well, you did. You've had some chances in the year or looked at some nice deer in the daytime, but typically your best success has been in the evening, isn't it? Yeah, up there. I mean, if I go back and look at all the deer I killed, it's probably 50% I've killed in the morning and probably 50% in the evening. Yeah. I just, whether I like to get out of bed sometimes is the issue. Yeah. Yeah. But, I love the morning hunt. I really do. I love, I love morning hunting. I love being out there in the morning, especially sitting in that timber waiting for a big deer to, to move but i typically don't start sitting mornings till that late october you know i mean when i know the deer are really moving cruising for rut um i've killed three booners on october 23rd one was in the morning and two been in the evening so this that time period i think i'd rather hunt from october 23rd to october 31st and i would November 2nd to November 6th and just do mainly that November 2nd 6th is the unpredictability I guess and kind of yeah it just starts to get more radical at that mm -hmm. point you don't know what's going to happen but those deer those bigger deer you know they're starting to really feel their oats or working them scrapes and just kind of stretching their legs a little bit checking the playground out you know and that time frame is, is there one day that's kind of stuck out for you ben that you've that you've know you know i've heard other, other people say uh you know that certain day is you know bill winky i don't know if it's november 6th 7th that's his favorite day you know that he's had the most success on is there one day that kind of sticks out for you that that you're going to be in a stand no matter what well during the rut i like i like november 8 8 9 11 right in there those are great days um but like I said, I've killed three Booners on October 23rd. So that's a hard day not to like. But I've known every one of those deer, and I knew where they were at at that point. So if I'm out of state, I'd much rather hunt that later, like that 8th to the 20th part of November for catching a really big deer. Because a lot of times you can run into that point where those, those bucks are locked up in that, you know, 7th. It just depends, though, too. Like, it seems like when I've hunted Iowa and places, like that eighth mark, you're still, them deer still haven't locked up. But after that, they start locking down. And then they free up again around that 15th mark. You know, in Ohio, they don't seem, they start locking down. Seems like they can lock down anywhere around that fifth to the tenth. And then they let up again. You know, I don't know if it's, it's just my that's been my experience here kansas i'd much rather hunt kansas like from the 15th on truthfully 15th of but, november you know, we, yeah i mean as far as for big deer you know 
Um, but we've killed them earlier just because that's when we're forced to hunt there, you know. So you can do it. But I think to catch a really good one, I think Kansas fires up in there that later November more. It seems like the, it's a little more south, you know, on the equator, and it just seems to stay warmer out there. Don't you think, Shed? It has the last couple of years. I mean, it's, I mean, sitting in the stand last year is 90 degrees. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just been tough. So it's like, seems to me later was always better, you know, when I would go out there years ago. You know, Shed had a little encounter with a, with a pretty, pretty good buck last year in Kansas. It's kind of, he's had nightmares over it ever since. Uh, yeah. He, yeah, Ben was there. Was, it's yeah, like ben, was, knows, ben knows the deer. He got the text yeah. from me that I was having a heart attack. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> I think it's his screensaver. He had it on his Facebook page. Is uh, uh you, you probably thought about him today, named, didn't you? We named uh, that we named that deer Joe Biden. We probably should change <laughs> the name, but I mean he haunts me every day. I look at him every day. I, I text yeah. the guy that that uh, is out there. I, I text him two days ago. I'm like, have you seen Joe? He's like, not yet. It sounds like there's a pile of corn planted around that place. So I'm sure he, he's he's near. Nobody killed him. Yeah, he's around. You'd have heard about it if somebody killed that deer. Yeah. You know, but uh, kind of the good thing about it is, though, that me and Ben, the, the, a lot of the other guys that are out there uh, didn't draw this year. So me and Ben will kind of be in Joe's playground if, <laughs> if uh, Ben goes out there. He probably uh, – Joe's don't stand a real good chance this year if he if he comes back. Yeah. Uh, hopefully he'll find his one demise us, there with one. One of us is going to put an arrow in him, whether it's me yeah, or Yeah, he'll be on but... Whitetail Edge with somebody, Shad <laughs> or me, or Trav. You know, Ben is a, is a is a guy that's very familiar with the, the timber and the woods. Uh, are there certain, especially I guess on a new property, are there certain terrain features that you look for and, and do you look at uh, aerial aerial maps and uh, topography maps. Do you do you look at those to kind of help select where you're going to be, especially if it's a property you're not familiar with? Um, yeah, I mean, so I'm huge on on X hunt maps. I'm huge on that. Using that's almost like the Bible on my phone. Um, using the topographical features and figuring out, you know, a lot of times I've already got spots picked out that I want to look at before I even get to a place, you know little ridges or saddles or you know like a flat ridge leading to a food source you know coming up out of a valley and it makes a ridge top so you can keep your wind nice and high those deer typically are going to enter those fields just on that little bit of that lower half of that or you know but you can keep your wind up high on those i love top access farms hunting bottoms is tough because you know your wind thermals and swirling all the time it's hard to keep it consistent killed them in the bottoms i killed my deer last year in the bottom but um, just the average guy is really going to struggle with scent in those situations. So top access, looking at ridge tops that, you know, where the ridges are that maybe connect or dip and connect or creek crossings or creeks, creek splits, things like that are all different places. Transitions from cutoff timber to heavy timber, great places to look for deer sign, travel corridors. How about from a scouting standpoint, how much scouting you, do you put in this summer? Uh, how much do you do, if any, during the season? I used to drive around, burn the wheels off my truck looking <laughs> for deer, you know, and I don't really do that anymore because a lot of the stuff I have to hunt, I can't really see from the road good. And I kind of use the cameras more 
I do scout in season, especially if I don't have a deer on camera that's doing what I think he should be. I will scout, you know, and I know there's some guys that are really aggressive about scouting, keeping up on the deer sign and some, it works for some people, you know, um, when I'm out of state, yeah, I'll scout and I look for fresh sign, figure out what the deer are doing, but I'm not necessarily hunting rubs and scrapes first week of November, you know, second week of November, because if that point of the scrapes is pretty much over you know they'll still run by them and check them but they're pretty much with those at that point looking for them a lot of the rubbing happens before and after the rut same with the scraping you know what do you do from a scent control standpoint ben what, what all things do you employ the the soap and stuff i use is made by illusion systems it's the phase system uh p-a-p-h-a-z-e that's what we use for soaps um but it's pretty good stuff i mean i like it what i really am big on is the foam that they make and it's uh and then they they actually make a, a lotion which i'm not a lotion guy but i really <laughs> like that stuff because it kind of seals you up and it really does work uh it's pretty effective um but you know i still don't think you can beat a deer 100 percent all the time so it's just yeah. one of them things you got to try to do the best you can um, keep your clothes clean. Don't be pumping gas in your clothes. And although I will say, I don't think diesel fuel and gas and all that stuff is what freaks deer out. Yeah. It's humans. We stink, man. Mm -hmm. There is something about us that a deer can just really pick up on. I don't know if it's our breath, our hair. I'm not sure what it is, but I don't think diesel fuel. I think you'd be better off to sit in a tree stand full of diesel fuel than you would be to you know try to just not have anything because mm -hmm. that kind of stuff don't bother them i mean do they think it's right being maybe in a certain location maybe not but that kind of stuff is doesn't seem to be what really turns them off it's our sweat it's our something about humans we just have some kind of rank smell to a deer and they know it's wrong do, do you utilize much of the ozone whether it's in your tree or with your you know your garments there's different companies that you know of course make all that do, have you do you use yeah. any of that and have you had success with it i i've tried the ozone in both i've tried it in a tree stand i've tried it in a blind i've tried you know putting it using the scent lock bag with ozone generator in it i mean i definitely think it helps i don't think it hurts by any means you know i do believe that ozone is natural and that it does help especially with like a couple of garments in a bag like you can't stuff the whole bag full and expect to clean all the clothes there's just no yeah. way around it. Mm -hmm. i think the scent the scent crusher closet is a pretty good idea um or something like that where you can space your clothes out i think those are good things is, is there anything from a shooting standpoint you know kind of that moment of truth and you know of course you know you you listen to all kinds of people and we talk to all kinds of folks that you know really struggle you know, with that moment of truth that gets so nervous, they can't pull the bow back. Or Is there any type of regiment that you go through when you shoot as far as talking to yourself, telling yourself, or are you just shot enough where you're confident at that moment of truth that happens? Or, I mean, there's been a time or two I've had to, like, you know, talk to myself a little bit. Just like, you know, hey, this is what – that's if I'm seeing him from a way, a long ways away. You know, and it's taken a long time to get him there or things like that. But typically at this point – I'm pretty calm, you know, I'm, you know, I don't really get nervous till it's over, yeah. you know, used to be 
I'd hit the tree behind it, throw arrows through their horns, <laughs> you know, whatever when I was a kid. But I was just rushing it at that point. I mean, I had a point where, like, I'd just draw the bow, come down. The second I saw hair, I was firing. You know, you can't – you just can't do that. you got to really calm yourself down and just remember you worked hard how hard you work to get to that point and don't let this mess it up. You know, mm-hmm. don't let this be the one thing that ruins that, you know. And, and you've been around a block of time or two, you know, and so you got experience behind you. And yeah, the experience is huge. I encourage everybody to go out and just shoot deer, mm-hmm. shoot does, you know, go out and shoot some does, shoot anything with your bow that's alive. It's totally different shooting something with a bow than it is, you know, with a gun in a sense. Um, I think even with a gun, though, you still have to prepare yourself. You have to practice and be good with whatever weapon you're choosing, and you owe it to the deer to do that. What would you say separates you from from the average hunter? What's been the difference maker for you to get you in that where you've, you know, you've killed several booners. You've killed, what, two or three over over 200 now? Right. I've killed two over two. I've killed 13 booners, two over 200. What, what, what is you it know. that separates you, you think, that's allowed you to do that? Obviously, you you got the point where you could pass up deer that at one point were, you know, that you would have shot at, and you've let some of those go by, which is probably difficult at the yeah. time, you know. But what what all yeah. things have you done to kind I of just, get to where you're at? I'm relentless. I just don't give up. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What would you say, Shed? What, what do you think? I mean, I don't even know really how to answer <laughs> it. <laughs> Well, there's there's two things. One is you live where the deer are. That always helps. Yeah, absolutely. You got to live do that. In you got to live and hunt where there's big deer. Yeah, you got to live where the deer are. And then, like I said, you just there's certain people that just have certain gifts. And I mean, I've I've been around some, and then I've been around. You know, of course, there's the ones that you know go to an outfitter. And, pull the trigger and that's kind of the way they're hunting but there's certain people that understand deer and wildlife and and way animals do certain things and you just have that knack and she just got that gift yeah and i think too one of the things is like just grinding you know like just being after it like you can't give up like, you know, whether you're in Kansas, just like you, you know, you hunted in Kansas days last year and you'd sit in that stand and stand, you know, especially once you saw that deer, you weren't giving up at all until you had to. But um, I think that's what separates a lot of people is just the drive, you know, the desire to get out there and make something happen and not just sit on the couch when you could be doing things, you know, like I don't play golf. I don't, I don't play softball. I don't do anything like that i mean i deer hunt you know that's one thing i tell people like i'm not golfing in the summer i'm not you know if i'm not watching my boy play baseball and i'm not at work then i'm doing something revolved around deer if i'm not camping with the family or doing something that they need done you know i mean i'm that's just how it is i think it's priority levels i definitely put i put way too much priority in the deer there's no (laughs) doubt about it if i read my bible as part as i uh study deer i'd be I'd be glowing. <laughs> I mean, I think the average, you know, your average hunters spend two, three, four days, you know, hunting in a tops, you know, for the entire season or a weekend, and they wonder, you know, why they didn't have success. And so, uh, you know, being relentless and having a passion for it. And some people can't, you know, some people weekends all they want to do. So that's that's 
obviously fine, you know, but yeah, when it's, when it's a passion and you sit in a tree stand for days and you don't see one deer, you keep going back to the next one. Maybe not the same stand, but, or you miss a big yeah. one, you're back in it the next day versus giving up and you don't seem to be the person that gives up. You do seem re- relentless and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a saying too: hunt smarter, not harder. If that deer is not ready to be hunted, I don't hunt them. I mean, last year I literally sat in the tree stand one day in Ohio and I did not sit that stand till the 14th of October. I didn't hunt till the 14th of October and season came in like 28th of September and I never went hunting once. And everybody, you know, been hunting, seeing deer, you know, I just hadn't hunted yet. It wasn't right. I didn't have a deer that I wanted to kill. And the ones that I did have, when I finally found the one I wanted to kill, he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do until, until he told me it was time. Then I slid in and I took advantage of his weakness. When you don't have, you know, a buck on camera that you scouting that you've identified as one you want to go after, what, what do you do if you don't have one? I guess eventually you're looking for other properties, other places to go. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll hunt some does, things like that. And then if worst case scenario, I'll ride it out to the end of the year trying to find a big one. Yeah. You know, and if I can't find one of those, then I'll go shoot a deer that's old and needs to be shot. You know, something like that. I'll go shoot a mature deer. You know, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to shoot a so-called TV buck just to make a video. I just won't do it. Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse than watching TV and you see these guys laying in front of a three and a half year old. Not that there's anything wrong with shooting a three and a half year old. If that makes you happy, God bless you. Yeah. But don't sit there and tell me that it's a five, six and a half year old mature deer. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's what I don't like. Yeah. Like just, just fess up to it. Mm. I just shot the bastard. <laughs> like that's TV. right. I waited, long, I waited long enough. Something had to go down. Yeah, you'd respect yeah, that it's more. It's like the deer I shot in Kansas last year. He wasn't no old deer, but we'd hunted hard enough, and I saw those horns, and he looked big to me, and I waylaid him. Yeah. Yeah, at some point, you go enough, and the purpose is getting a deer at some point. Sometimes you just need to get one, and that's okay, but yeah, yeah. Just, just say it, you know? Yeah, well, that's right. Well, lastly, Ben, I just want to want to ask you what kind of what you've got planned for the upcoming year. What does Whitetail Edge have in plan, and uh, what states are you hunting in? And yeah, so I'm I'll be hunting for sure. I'll be hunting Kansas, Ohio, uh, Illinois. Good chance I might hunt place in Indiana. I'm going to go do some scouting this weekend on a place I just got permission to hunt on. So possibility of hunting Indiana and a possibility of uh, a place in kentucky if something shows up there we'll see but uh whitetail edge is growing and if you haven't watched us you can watch us on mossy oak go uh that's where we prefer our preferred platform um we're also on carbon tv and we're on youtube and our website but uh pretty easy to find us i'm sure i'll be hanging some stands for shed somewhere along the year and he said something about you maybe wanting a muzzleloader hunt if I can find something big towards that time of year. Well, then I'll be calling you if I got something on the hook that's worth shooting. Yes, sir. Good deal. Thank you. I would I would enjoy that greatly. So even if I didn't shoot anything, I would enjoy it. Well, appreciate you spending yeah. time with us today. It means a great deal. And, hey, you got any questions, uh, Dustin, before we get off here? No. You he got kept any? all the secrets private. Has he got any? Uh... <laughs> I don't really <laughs> have any secrets. <laughs> I like people to think I have secrets. I'm just lucky. <laughs> have you got one kind of staked out already for, for Shed that's waiting on him? I might have one in my pocket that I haven't shown him a picture of yet. <laughs> Keep it close to your vest, Ben. Don't give him too much. Yeah, I don't want to give him too much info. 
Well, guys, hey, I appreciate yeah. it. All right. I'll thanks. let you get to your day. Ben, thanks for taking time with us. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Yes, sir. You too. Thank you for spending time today with Shed and I and our guest, Mr. Ben Rising of Whitetail Edge. Ben is recognized and highly respected as one of the best big buck killers of our time. His preparation, knowledge of the woods, and his work ethic, along with his attention to detail, it made him highly successful and allowed him to take several Boone and Crockett bucks, with two of them scoring over 200 inches. Throw in the fact that he is a good friend of Shed's, and well, that just shows that he's a heck of a good guy. Please assist Shed and I by liking and rating today's episode and by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we can reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms and with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.